Amen. We worship the one whose name is above all other names and in whom alone can bring us satisfaction. If you will uh, remain standing with me and turn uh, in your Bibles for our scripture reading to Psalm chapter 16. As Pastor Bruce continues in the series Summer in the Psalms, and we are looking at joyful satisfaction this morning, and the text is Psalm chapter 16. If you need uh, a pew Bible, there's one in front of you. Feel free to grab one and, uh, and open it up and turn to Psalm 16. Please follow along as I read from our passage this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way uh, that it reveals truth to us. Thank you for Pastor Bruce and his preparation this week. In uh, in preparing his sermon from, uh, from Psalm 16. And Lord, may we have open hearts and minds, and, and uh, may we just dwell on your goodness. And Lord, may we find our ultimate satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many joy seekers do we have here this morning? Yes, that is every one of us here. If you do not realize it, you are a joy seeker. In fact, it's no secret that all of us here are joy seekers. In fact, all of humanity are joy seekers. We, we want to be content in life. We, we want to be satisfied. We want to feel secure. And, and under all of this is our deepest desire for joy, for satisfaction. He was an extremely talented quarterback. He was the, the number one pick of the 1993 NFL draft. He was immediately considered to be the face of the New England Patriots. And in his seven years as the starting quarterback, the Patriots made the playoffs four times, won their division twice, and played in the Super Bowl in 1997. He was also named to three Pro Bowls. But in 2001, he lost his starting job in the worst possible way. At the height of his career, after he had just signed a mega contract, he was injured in the fourth quarter of a game early in the season. And with his injury entered a skinny, unknown, six-round draft pick from Michigan named Tom Brady. Yes, boo, boo, boo. The injured quarterback's name was, probably no, Drew Bledsoe. After recovering from the injury, after losing his starting job, Bledsoe got over his self-pity and had great success with other teams until his retirement in 2007. He was driven by his desire for his old team to forever regret benching him. And he ended his career in the top 10 in numerous NFL passing records. Completions, yards, touchdown passes. In fact, one famous football journalist recently named him the 30th greatest quarterback in NFL history. But as you know, that skinny six-round draft pick from Michigan would go on to lead that 2001 Patriots team to a Super Bowl title his first of seven Super Bowl victories, and he's now widely considered to be the greatest to ever play the game. In a recent interview, Bledsoe admitted that he feels like his career 
despite all of his accomplishments, all the wins, all the trophies, all the achievements, that he still feels like his career will always be a footnote to Tom Brady's. And despite being recognized as a 30th greatest quarterback of all time, the NFL records, the Super Bowls, the Pro Bowls, he still considers himself to be a failure. In other words, he lacks joyful satisfaction. To Drew Brees, his legacy, his his life-defining event will always be the guy benched for Tom Brady. This morning, we're talking about the battle in your heart for joyful satisfaction. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that all men seek happiness and that this motive is at the root of every action we take in our lives. C.S. Lewis points out that contrary to what many people think, the Bible consistently appeals to our desire for, for lasting pleasure, but that pleasure is not found in drink or in sex or ambition, but in knowing and following the Lord. This is why David invites us in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for you to find joyful satisfaction in the Lord, and that is what Psalm 16 is all about. It's about finding joyful satisfaction in Him. In fact, in this psalm, David focuses on all his blessings, on all the benefits from God. And he basically declares, I am satisfied in the Lord. I have found joyful satisfaction in him. David says to the Lord, as you scan through this Psalm 16, he says, you are my refuge. You are my goodness. You are my counsel. You are at my right hand. You are my security. You are my guide. And in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. One commentator put it this way, there there reigns in the whole psalm a a settled calm, an inward joy, a joyous confidence which is certain that everything that it can desire for the present and for the future, it possesses in its God. So here's the main point we're going to see this morning from Psalm 16. In other words, David wants you to know what he knows. He wants you to find out what he has found out. He wants you to discover what he's discovered for himself. And it's the main point of the psalm here, is that you will find joyful satisfaction in God now and forevermore when you exalt him as your safest refuge, supreme treasure, and sovereign Lord. In fact, we actually see this in the very first two verses of the psalm here when David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so immediately, in the first two verses of Psalm 16, David exalts God as what? As his safest refuge. As his supreme treasure as his sovereign Lord. David says, O God, for in you I take refuge. In other words, David turns to God for safety above all other ways of being safe in life. David says, you are my Lord. In other words, that Lord there, he's saying, God, you are my master. I I, I submit everything to you. He exalts in God's sovereign rule over his life as he submits his life to God. And then he says, I have no good apart from you. In other words, he's saying, God is my supreme treasure. God is my highest treasure over and above everything else in this world. There is no good for David apart from God. And then in the rest of the psalm, David simply extols upon this. He expands on this idea. He proclaims the joyful satisfaction that he finds in God as his safest refuge, as his supreme treasure, and as his sovereign Lord, in concluding the psalm in verse 11 with these astounding words, in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In other words, joyful satisfaction. Now before moving on, let's just stop here or pause and ask a question. And that is this, who 
is God for you? Listen, God, God is many, many, many things to many people, especially in our culture today. But who is God for you? Is he, like he was for David, is he your safest refuge? Is he your supreme treasure? And is he your sovereign Lord? Who is God for you? And how you answer that question will determine whether you find joyful satisfaction in God. A.W. Tozier, he, he has written many books, and one of his most famous sayings is this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason he says that, the reason that is true and important is because he goes on, and according to what he says this, we tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move towards our mental image of God. And so here in Psalm 16, David wants us to know that we will find joyful satisfaction when we move toward God, not as we create him to be in our minds, but as he is revealed in Scripture, specifically here in Psalm 16, as our safest refuge. We move toward him as our supreme treasure. We exalt him as our sovereign Lord. And if we will do these things like David did, listen, we can say like David at the end of the psalm in verse 11, in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In other words, I have found now and forevermore joyful satisfaction. So let's unpack this. Let's let's look at this for the next few minutes here. How does this happen? What do we need to do? How can we apply the psalm of David? Number one, trust in God as your safest refuge. It's the first step. Trust in God as your safest refuge. David begins the psalm here with a prayer of trust in verse one. And it's a simple prayer. He just says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, we do not know whether David prayed this prayer at a time when his life was in imminent danger or if he was just reflecting on his life in general. And so whatever the situation was for David, what we do know is his prayer here, his petition, it is very short. It's one verse, one sentence, but it was very substantial. Listen, we, everyone here needs a place of refuge. That's how we're created. And so notice David's prayer. His petition is this. It's basically for God's protection in his life. In fact, that word preserve means to keep or to watch over. And so David is asking God to keep him, to guard him, to protect him. He's asking to be kept safe and secure. Now, you might remember David as a boy. What was he? What was his occupation? He was a shepherd. And as a shepherd boy, David watched over his father's sheep. He, and in doing so, he protected the sheep, specifically from the danger of thieves and wild animals. And now David is asking God to be that for him. He's asking God to watch over him with the care and concern of a shepherd. And David trusted God to protect him. Why? Because he specifically took refuge in God. David trusted God to protect him. We might say like the Secret Service protects the president. The fact is we all long for a place of refuge and security both now and for eternity. Kind of reminds me of the old Peanuts comic strip where it paints a picture of this longing for security that we have. And there stands Linus. And what's Linus known for? He's clutching hold of what? His blankie. He's blankie. He's rubbing it up against his cheek. It's his security blanket. And as long as he has that blanket, all is well in the world, even though the world is falling apart. But all is not well because who is lurking in the next scene is Snoopy. And at the moment when Linus is feeling the most secure, Snoopy will come along, running along to rip that security blanket from Linus' hands, and Linus' world will suddenly fall apart because he's lost his security blanket. 
And that's us holding tightly to, to whatever it is that gives us a feeling of security. And today, it might be the government assuring you of homeland security. It might be that insurance policy covering you in an accident. It might be your 401k policy providing for you in retirement. It could be a gazillion things that we, we latch onto for what we think is going to provide us security in this chaotic world of ours. But the dogs of war or accident or the stock market collapse are just lurking around the corner from what we can see. And so it's no wonder that the construction of, quote, safe rooms is now a booming business in our world. You know what a safe room is, don't you? Safe room, also called a panic room, is a a fortified room that is installed in a private residence or perhaps even a business to provide a safe shelter, a hiding place for the inhabitants in the event of a break-in, a home invasion, a tornado, a terror attack, and other threats. In fact, you can Google safe rooms, panic rooms, and the Internet is filled with a gazillion ads for for buying pre-made safe rooms or even on how to build your own safe room. But David here is pointing us in a very different direction in our frantic quest for security. David is pointing us in the direction to trust in God as your safest refuge. In other words, by the example of David here, we are to run to God and we are to trust him to be our, quote, safe room. And if God is your refuge, then everything from temporal preservation to eternal salvation is covered by God. He preserves it. He protects it. And so if you want to find joyful satisfaction, then the first place to begin is to trust God as your safest refuge. Number two is to delight in God as your supreme treasure. Now, perhaps... No one in the last 50 years has challenged us to delight in God as our supreme treasure more than a person by the name of John Piper. Over and over again, he reminds us in the many books he has written, in the many sermons he has preached, where he is famous for this saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's basically the idea that what David means when he invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good in Psalm 34, 8. In other words, delight in God as your supreme treasure. And that's what David declares here in Psalm 16 and verses 2 through 8. And so let us just kind of go through that a little bit here. David's declaration of God as his supreme treasure. First of all, notice the Lord, David declares, is the source of my satisfaction. David committed himself to God because he was convinced that God is good. And apart from God, he has no good when he says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. In other words, David, he refuses to hedge his bets. He's all in on God. God alone is the source of his satisfaction. Later on in the Psalms, Asaph echoes a very similar conviction when he writes in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He goes on to state in verse 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. One pastor puts it this way, everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. That's the idea. To look for God or to look for good apart from God, to look for satisfaction elsewhere would be foolish. It would be idolatrous. It would would mean pursuing another God, a false God. In fact, we're reminded in James chapter 1, 16 and 17, that He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so there's no good gift that doesn't come from God. Not one. But Satan tempts us 
to think that we can somehow, in this world of ours, we can somehow find something good, something satisfying that is not from God. But as one author writes, to see the wrong thing as a good thing plunged the human race into sin. And of course, that all started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve convinced themselves that they knew what good was better than God. We read that in Genesis chapter 3, and we all too frequently, yet foolishly, we follow in their footsteps. In fact, when I, when I kind of evaluate and dig beneath the surface of my sin, most of the time, as I look at it and evaluate it for what it is, I'm, I'm just simply trying to find something good, something satisfying apart from God and his ways for my life. And that good thing might be pleasure, it might be security, it might be significance, it might be some relationship, it might be this or that, you name it. But in the end, it is idolatry because I'm now serving someone or something other than God to satisfy my needs and desires. Listen, you and I here, we will never delight in God as our supreme treasure unless we believe with all our hearts that God is good and God alone is the source of our satisfaction. David states this. The Lord is the source of my satisfaction and I have no good apart from you. Number two, David basically says, the Lord's people are my delight. So David's delight in God's goodness now leads to his delight in God's people. When he writes in verse three, look at it. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And this follows what we learned last Sunday in Psalm 15. It follows the same spirit of what David wrote there in verse 4, where we read that the righteous person honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, if we delight in God, we will also delight in God's people. Paul Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, he's, he's writing to the church at Colossae, and he says of them, listen, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and, and of the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul, he identifies faith in Christ and love for the saints. In other words, the vertical and the horizontal, and basically they always go together. Yes, God's people are imperfect. If that's you, raise your hand. Just kidding. No, we're all raising our hand, right? God's people are imperfect, me included in that. We all are. Listen, we, me, you, we can be prideful, we can be hypocritical, judgmental, and selfish. There's no doubt about it. But this psalm won't let you off the hook. If God is truly your supreme treasure, then you will value his people. You will delight in God's people. One author In his commentary on the Psalms, he lists seven reasons we need God's people. Let me just read it. He says we need the fellowship of God's people. We need the instruction of God's people. We need the accountability of God's people. We need the rebuke of God's people. We need the comfort of God's people. We need the love of God's people. We need the presence of God's people. In other words, without God's people in our lives, we will stumble and falter. We will grow cold and cynical. We will miss out on the blessings God provides in and through these, quote, excellent ones, as David calls them. And they're not excellent because they're perfect. They are excellent because they are the people of God who've been redeemed by God. So so here's a question. Do you delight in God's people? Do you enjoy fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen, every one of us here needs God's people, which is why I just want to stand here and reiterate and encourage you at the end of the service to walk back to the back table there and sign up for a grow group. Go be part of a grow group where you can face-to-face in somebody's home 
on Sunday night, delight in God's people, even though they bug you sometimes. That's all part of it. It's a great thing. And if you're like, I don't know which group to sign up, ask myself or Pastor Chris. We'll direct you. We'll help you with that. Number three, David says, the Lord is the exclusive object of my worship. Now, David's worship of God here in verse 4, it's actually stated in the negative. And he states it in the negative to state something positive. And you'll see it when I read it. Look at it with me. Verse 4. David says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Listen, so here's what's going on. David values God so highly in his life that he will not dare to run after other gods. That's how much he values God in his life. In other words, for David, it is sheer folly to turn away from the all-satisfying God only to embrace false gods that leave you sorrowful in the end. David, in other words, is saying something like this. No, I will not do that. I will not run after other gods. I won't even put their names on my lips. Why? Because running after such gods, such false gods, will only disappoint you. They cannot give you the security that you long for, nor can they give you the joyful satisfaction that you desire. The gods of this world only offer empty promises. They make promises, but they never deliver. Even worse, David says, chasing after such idols will multiply your what? He says, You chase after those kind of gods of the world, and you will multiply your sorrows, your grief, your heartache, your pain. And some of you are sitting, and you know exactly what David's saying, because you've lived there, and you've done that. You can tell your story of the heartache and sorrow and pain that you have experienced because you have chased after those gods. And it has left you empty. It's left you with sorrow and grief. Matthew Henry put it this way. Those that multiply gods multiply grief to themselves. For whoever thinks one God is too little will find two gods too many. And yet hundreds are not enough. So a commitment to the Lord and a commitment to God's people means a repudiation of all other gods. It's a repudiation of any other worship. To delight in God as your supreme treasure requires that God alone is the object of your worship. David says he will have nothing to do with the works of those who do not love God. And specifically in context here, David says, I'm not going to join them in their pagan worship. Of pouring out the blood of their sacrifices. I'm not going to even name them on my lips. In other words, I'm not going to pray to those gods. Now, none of us here would ever pray to our false gods. We would never list it by name. But in our minds, we fix our hope on those gods. We're trying to rely on them and depend on them, which, by the way, is the essence of prayer. So in your mind, do you name those gods? David says, I'm not going to do that. No way. Here's the point. Dividing our worship between the true God and any of these false gods will only deepen our insecurity and multiply our sorrows. And since we all, every one of us here, since we all worship something or someone, we must constantly be asking ourselves, who or what am I really worshiping? the one true living God, or the false gods of this world? Or or perhaps are you trying to just hedge your bets by worshiping both? That's more like what we try to do. Some people wonder why they just can't find any joyful satisfaction in God when they are pursuing the gods of this world alongside 
the one true living God. And it doesn't work. See, those who run after false gods alongside the one true living God are simply inviting disaster. Their sorrows will multiply. Number four, David says, the Lord is my sustenance and inheritance. David here in these next verses is basically expressing his contentment in God. In fact, he's drawing on language related to Joshua's conquest of the promised land, where David now says in verses 5 and 6, look at it with me in your Bibles, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, God, hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And so these verses that David's using, they point back to the days of Joshua when God allocated the land the promised land, that is, between the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe was given its portion of the land by lot with a very clear boundary line that marked off their borders of their land. And so this land was also to become their inheritance that was to be passed down through generation to generation. But one tribe did not receive a portion of the land. You might know who that tribe is. It was the Levites. And God said to the Levites this in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. He says, you will not have an inheritance in the land. There will be no portion among them for you. And then God states, I, I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the Israelites. In other words, the the Levites did not have the security of their own land They had to rely on God for their safety and for their sustenance in life. He, in other words, became their beautiful inheritance in the words of David. And now what David's doing, he's claiming the same thing for himself here. He's basically saying the same thing that God said to the Levites. He's claiming the same relationship with God. He's saying, the Lord is my sustenance. He is my beautiful inheritance. In other words, the greatest blessing that David understands that God can give is himself. And so David declares, the Lord is my portion. David knows. He has learned through through the ups and downs and his trials. He's learned now. He has lived it out and he has learned that the Lord as his portion is better than the best piece of land that anyone might inherit in the promised land. David also says to the Lord, it's interesting, this phrase, he says, Lord, you hold my lot. Remember, the land was divided by lot. Draw straws. David says, Lord, you hold it. And so David here, with that phrase, he he is gratefully acknowledging something here. He is acknowledging God's providence, God's sovereignty over his life. He's acknowledging God's providence in ordering his life, marking out his life, and determining even the circumstances of his life. That is, whatever happens to us, David says, it comes from the hand of God. He holds my lot. He decides it. He sovereignly rules over it. Therefore, David can joyfully say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And for David, that inheritance is God himself. And then number five. Lastly, David says, the Lord is my counselor and comforter. David praises the Lord as his counselor here in verse 7. Look at it. When he writes, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now, that's not an insignificant add-on. What David says here actually shapes the way God is our safest refuge, supreme treasure, and sovereign Lord. For example... God is a refuge in large part by the way he counsels us, the way he guides us and instructs us 
into his safety. You say, how does God do this? How does God give us counsel, his counsel? Well, obviously God counsels us through prayer, right? I think you would agree with that. Scriptures testify to that. God counsels us through his people as well, which is why we need God's people. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Proverbs 11.14 says, in multitude of counselors, there is what? Safety. So we know God counsels us through, through prayer, through his people, but first and foremost, primarily, especially in the context of the Psalms, God's counsel comes to us through his revealed written word. You go to Psalm chapter 1. And there Psalm 1 implies that the righteous walks away from the counsel of the wicked. And instead, the righteous meditates on what? On God's law, day and night. Psalm 119, verse 24, God's testimonies or laws are actually called my counselors. We could go on and on. God gives us counsel first and foremost through his word. And David says he receives it day and night in good times and in troubling times. And David even makes this phenomenal statement. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. In other words, as I receive God's counsel in his word in the daytime, and then as I meditate on it and consider it and ponder it at night, it's in my heart, and now my heart instructs me as well. It's not based upon my feelings, my thoughts, my own personal counsel, what I think. No, I have taken it and I have received God's counsel in his word, his ways, his truth, his will as revealed in his word. That is now my counsel. That's what I meditate on. And even at night now, when I consider my circumstances, when I consider my decisions that I have to make, when I consider what I'm going through, and I lay in bed, and I can't go to sleep, even my heart instructs me. It's beautiful. But David also says, in verse 8, and he alludes to the fact that God is not only his counselor, but his comforter. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In other words, because the Lord is always before him in all his thoughts, in all his actions. David says, I will not be shaken. We saw this last Sunday. I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. Why? I am secure. I have sought refuge in God. And so what we see is that David's prayer in verse 1, where he prays, preserve me, O God, has now become David's confidence it's become his comfort here in verse 8 where it says, I, I will not be shaken. No matter what's going on in this world around me, God, I have prayed to you, preserve me. I have sought refuge in me, and now that prayer has become my comfort. I will not be shaken. Why? Because you are at my right hand. Your word has counseled me. It has guided me into your safety as my safest refuge. So if you want to find some joyful satisfaction in this life, then trust God as your safest refuge and delight in God as your supreme treasure. And then number three, rejoice in God as your sovereign Lord. Everything David has said thus far leads him now to rejoice in God as his sovereign Lord. And so we come to this great therefore of David's joy in verses 9 through 11. Look at it one more time with me where David writes, therefore, therefore what? Everything he said before in Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so here we see David's joyful satisfaction. 
Notice, first of all, two observations about this. First of all, gladness and joyfulness is the result. We might say the byproduct. It's what happens when we trust in God's preservation of our lives. And when we seek refuge in God, when we trust Him as our safest refuge, gladness and joyfulness, is, it just overwhelms us. David is full of joy because he knows something here. He knows that he can trust God with all his life. Even in death, David trusts that God will preserve him. David not only rejoices inwardly when he says, my heart is glad, that's inward joy, but he also rejoices outwardly when he shouts, my whole being rejoices. And then he says, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And so David is confident that his life rests secure in God's protection. He is secure in body and soul. He has inward and outward peace. In fact, David's confidence here extends beyond just the the immediate crisis that he might be facing to the very question of life after death. David, he is confident that the Lord will will not abandon his soul to Sheol, which is simply the grave or the place of the dead in the Old Testament. David knew he was going to die eventually. But his concern was that the Lord not abandon him to death, not now and certainly not permanently. He found comfort in knowing that in the final analysis, God was not going to abandon him to the grave. Death will not be the end of David's relationship with God. He was certain of that. Death will not cancel out all that he has known about his God. And this is why it is said in Psalm 49, verse 5, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he has received me, or he will receive me. And then we see number two, in God's presence, what do we find? David says, in the presence of God, we find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So not only will God deliver David from death, but God will bless him with life in his presence where he will find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You see, David had a hope that went far beyond the grave to enjoy a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in God's presence. And that is your hope if you know what David knows. If you know God is your safest refuge, as your supreme treasure, and as your sovereign God. If I might quote John Piper again, he says this. Fullness of joy and eternal joy cannot be improved. Nothing is fuller than full, and nothing is longer than eternal, and this joy is owning to the presence of God. So don't miss what David says here in the conclusion of the psalm here in verse 11. He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So where is joyful satisfaction found? Our culture would have you pursue that in other places, in someone else, in all the false gods of our world. But David is pointing us in a different direction. David is telling us Listen, this joyful satisfaction that every human that's ever been born craves is found in God now and forevermore. When? When we exalt him as our safest refuge, our supreme treasure, and our sovereign Lord. You say, how can you be so sure about that, Bruce? And you speak with such confidence and passion. How can you be so sure? Maybe you're thinking, I, I, I hear what David is saying. I, I hear how, what you've said about what David is saying. But, but how can I know for sure that I will have joyful satisfaction in God now and forevermore like David did? How can we know that? How can we be so certain? 
Well, that's a legitimate question, is it not? And my answer to you, the reason we can know, the reason we can be so certain is because someone greater than David guarantees it. Notice this in your notes. All of God's promises of joyful satisfaction are secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is that while we read Psalm 16 as the Psalm of David, you jump to the New Testament, and there in the book of Acts, Peter and Paul provide another layer of understanding to this particular psalm. Both Peter and Paul actually applied Psalm 16 to Jesus Christ. In fact, when Peter preached at Pentecost that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he quoted verses 8 through 11 in his sermon. Peter argues that David could not have been talking about himself. Why? Because David was dead, right? David was buried in a tomb, and therefore his body did see corruption. And so Peter concludes that David was writing prophetically about Jesus Christ, who did not stay in the tomb and who did not decay. And so listen to what Peter declares here in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 32. He says, being therefore a prophet, he's speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. And then you jump later on in the same book, book of Acts. And there the Apostle Paul also quoted from Psalm 16 in his sermon at Antioch. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 32, Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has, this has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, that is Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And there you have the quote. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what's going on with all that? Basically, Peter and Paul are joyfully testifying that God did not leave Jesus in the tomb. He's risen, amen? That's, that's what we celebrate Easter for. In fact, that's what we celebrate every Sunday, every day of our lives. And that means, that means that God's promises of joyful satisfaction in him are secure for God's people. In other words, Jesus' resurrection secures for us, it guarantees us all the promises of Psalm 16 here. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we, we can find joyful satisfaction in him now and forevermore. I'll say it this way. What it means is this. Is David's reality of joyful satisfaction can become your reality in this world today. And the guarantee of that, what secures that is none other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Question is, do you believe it? And are you embracing it? Are you exalting God? And in this case, Jesus Christ, joyful satisfaction is offered to us. That is the live it out lesson of Psalm 16. It is offered to us in none other the person and works of Jesus Christ. And so exalt him now as your safest refuge, as your supreme treasure, and as your sovereign Lord. And listen, if you will do that, 
David's reality of joyful satisfaction will become your reality of joyful satisfaction. That doesn't mean free from problems. I wish it did. That doesn't mean the circumstances in your life will be all hunky-dory and great. It doesn't mean the world around you will all of a sudden become utopia. No, 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 no. It means in the midst of all that, there is still a joy and a satisfaction that we can know and experience. Why? Because we are exalting Jesus now in our lives as our safest refuge, as our supreme treasure, and as our sovereign Lord. So I'll leave you with the question that we began with, and I'll change it slightly. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your safest refuge? Is he your supreme treasure? And is he your sovereign Lord? Because it's in his presence where fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are found. And if you're sitting there like, man, I don't know that kind of satisfaction. I don't know that kind of pleasure and joy. Then ask yourself, where am I trying to find it? Where am I seeking it at? The problem is not with Jesus Christ. The problem is where we're trying to seek it and search it. And maybe we're trying to search for it alongside. No, 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 no. Jesus must become the exclusive one in your life. Supreme treasure. Safest refuge. Sovereign Lord. Is that who Jesus is to you? With your heads bowed, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. And thank you for the joyful satisfaction that can be ours in Jesus Christ. We confess that we often run after the idols of this world, hoping in them to find satisfaction, but finding only sorrow. So help us to see that such joy is found only in you and give us the grace to exalt you as our safest refuge, supreme treasure, and sovereign Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.